It's not a product, it's a technology. It's an education challenge. A regenerative suspension. There will be a growing demand for industrial photovoltaics. Tom Tiger. Innovation in the financing space. The high-speed train is in all our interests. All political lines. Australia is a solar paradise. The market is moving much faster than that. You've got something that's transformational. Solar window in a can. Beyond Zero. Global warming science, solutions and action. Taking it to a do-it-yourself level. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Beyond Zero show. Coming to you from the studios of 3CR Melbourne, syndicated around Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast on the internet at bze.org.au and 3cr.org.au. Don't forget you can also follow us on Twitter at bzetechshow. My name is Kay Wenigal and I'm joined today by my co-host Michael Steindl. G'day Kay. Today we're going to be talking to Michael Lord, BZE Project Director and lead author of the Rethinking Cement Report, which is the latest of the Zero Carbon Australia reports. In fact, just released. Cement production is the source of 8% of global greenhouse gas emissions and will increase as a proportion of other sources such as energy generation are tackled. This report is believed to be the world first to develop a plan on how we continue to meet cement production while maintaining a safe climate. Michael, welcome to the show and thanks for making the time to talk to us and our listeners. Hello, Kay. Good to have you here. Firstly, congratulations on the report. Thank you. It sounds like it was a mammoth effort. And now I hear you think cement is a very exciting topic. I think cement is exciting because cement is the the ingredient that makes concrete possible. It's the binder that binds together aggregates and allows us to make concrete. And as we say in the report... We make more cement and concrete than any other materials, about 4 billion tonnes of cement, more than 20 billion tonnes of concrete. And it's, it's everywhere, but it's so common as to be almost invisible. And that means we don't think about it. And we need to start thinking about it because, as you just said, it causes 8% of world greenhouse gas emissions. Well, you called limestone the new coal in this report. That's pretty scary. Yeah, that's right. It's something we thought of when we were writing the report, the equivalence between limestone and coal uh, in terms of climate change, because they're both created, they've both been created over hundreds of millions of years by the compression of you know, billions and billions of organisms. And that has captured a lot of ancient carbon. And what we're doing now with limestone, in the same way as we're doing coal, is that we're heating it and releasing that ancient carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. And just as with coal, it's something we've got to get on top of and find alternatives. So how does cement produce greenhouse emissions? I believe there's various categories of that. Yeah, that's right. And the the way cement produces greenhouse gas emissions is the reason that it's a, tr- a tricky subject and many people have said we can't do anything about the emissions from cement. So some of the emissions are just from the energy required to make cement. So the electricity for grinding, uh, the processes to make it take place at nearly 1500 degrees, so it's that energy, um, uh, burning fossil fuels to get that heat. But actually most of the emissions... 55 to 60% come from the chemical reactions of once you heat limestone to about 900 degrees, limestone is calcium carbonate, contains carbon dioxide, it begins to give off that carbon dioxide and transform into lime. And it's that reaction which causes most of the emissions uh, from cement manufacture, CaCO3 into carbon dioxide, CO2 and 
C-A-O, which is lime. And the report does go into a bit of history as well, how cement was made in the ancient times with the Romans. Cover that briefly. Yeah, that's right. Um, Cement use on a huge scale is something that's happened over the last 100, 150 years. But actually, cement and concrete are products which have go back a long way to the Egyptians, the Phoenicians. And the Romans were the first to start to use it on a large scale. So many of Roman buildings that are still standing today, which we know of, things like the Colosseum and the Pantheon, actually contain significant amounts of concrete. And it shows us how much the Romans knew about making concrete, that those buildings are still standing Mm. today. Um, The Romans, uh, I think, got lucky in a way because they made... uh, Uh, one of the ingredients they put into their cement was ash from Mount, uh, close to Mount Vesuvius. Vesuvius. Mm. That's right. And that ash uh, has very beneficial properties in making cement and is one of the things that has enabled the concrete that they made to last more than 2,000 years. Mm. Yeah, I think we're going to come to that later in more detail. So you gave some numbers at the start. Was it uh, 4 billion tonnes of cement and making 20 billion tonnes of concrete? That's that's right. That's worldwide per annum? That's worldwide. And a lot of that is in developing countries, particularly China. China at the moment makes more than half of cement. We've got a statistic in the report which says that uh, between 2011 and 2014, China made more cement than the United States did in the entire 20th century. Mm, So China's really going for it. Certainly are, aren't they? So so where does Australia fit in? Are you able to tell us off the top of your head how much we make and use and uh, do we import any? Yeah, Australia uh, uses about 12 million tonnes of cement. About two to three million tonnes of that is imported, either as cement or as clinker, which is the main ingredient in cement. The rest is manufactured here. So we manufacture three quarters of our own. Yeah, about three quarters. It's interesting that we don't manufacture at all. It's a fairly simple process, I think, isn't it? It is a fairly simple process. And we have all the raw materials. Uh, We have all the more materials. I just think it's a a question of cost. Like a lot of things, uh, China and other countries can sometimes produce uh, these things more cheaply than Australia. Yeah. So getting on to the report, it covers separately three areas in the cement industry, uh, the way it can reduce emissions in the current days. Yeah. Improving efficiency, using alternative fuels and clinker substitutions. So how much has been saved so far using these efforts, say, since the 1990s, perhaps? I think since the 1990s, about 20%. So the three approaches you just summarised is how the cement industry so far has been able to tackle emissions. So energy efficiency is one of those. We're really reaching the limits of what can be achieved with energy efficiency. There's only so far you can go with that, and, and improvements in the future will only be marginal. Alternative fuels, will the industry's been able to reduce emissions by using things like wood and waste products instead of fossil fuels to a certain extent, and that's reduced the emissions a bit. Again, the, the, the future possibility of reductions from that area is small, unless we say we're going to use lots of biomass, and we're very sceptical about solutions which uh, say let's just burn biomass for energy because there's so many sectors that say that's the solution, mm-hmm. um, aviation, shipping, etc. Uh, the last one, clinker substitution. So I mentioned clinker is the main ingredient in cement. This is this limestone-based material. Cement manufacturers are replacing that clinker 
with things like fly ash from coal-fired power stations, and they've been doing that increasingly over the past few decades. That's an area where we think, um, and one of our strategies covers this, that they could go, they could do a lot more clinker substitution. In Australia, they've arrived at about 30%. We think that they could go up to as high as uh, 70%. Okay. So you mentioned before about how much carbon dioxide is released with the, the current production. What about carbon capture and storage? Would that work? Carbon capture and storage is something when the cement industry talks about the long term and how they can make drastic cuts in their emissions, they often point to carbon capture and storage. Beyond Zero Emissions has written before about the limitations of carbon capture and storage. It's been touted as a solution for at least 15 years for coal-fired power stations and we have not seen much success uh, from that. Very few power stations around the world have installed it very few are planning to, and we think there's even less likelihood that a cement kiln uh, is going to install carbon capture and storage. So we don't, we, we don't accept that as, as an approach. But in the report, we do talk about an approach called, uh, it's a type of carbon capture and use, where you capture and lock away the carbon dioxide in situ at the plant and turn it into a product with uh, commercial value. We think that that has that could be a a valid approach in combination with other strategies. It sounds like a nuclear fusion, which has always been 20 years away for the last 50 years. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) So you talk about Portland cement, and as it ages slowly reabsorbing CO2, is that called carbonation, that um, process? That. That, that's that's right. So Portland cement is 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 the traditional cement. Ninety eight percent of cement made in the world is Portland cement, made through this process that we've been talking about. And as concrete, uh, let's say you have a concrete building exposed to the elements, as it ages, it actually conti- it actually absorbs carbon dioxide, which makes it harden. Uh, but it also uh, involves carbonation which actually corrodes the, st- the steel there's often steel within concrete to reinforce it and it corrodes that steel is which that is what what's known as can- concrete cancer that's right like yeah Nauru house when they had to redo the whole yeah that's the right yeah, yeah. In, in in fact uh putting steel into concrete is what really gives it um a a, a lifespan it, it's what kills it in the end. So if the Romans had put steel in their concrete, we wouldn't have a Pantheon or a Colosseum anymore. But on the flip side, we need the steel because concrete's fantastic in compression, but lousy in tension. And exactly, the steel exactly. Is that's what does that's that. why we put it in. Yeah. yeah. So tell us about the four strategies that you've come up with to get the zero carbon cement within 10 years. And um, Just summarise those and then we'll go through each one um, in more detail if you will. Yeah, that's right. So it's it's four strategies to eliminate carbon dioxide emissions from the cement industry in Australia. I'll start with strategy two, which is to extend that that approach of clinker substitution to use more and more uh, non-clinker materials in the manufacture of cement up to about 70%, and that, and that reduces the associated emissions by an equivalent amount. Mm-hmm. Strategy one is to make a completely different type of cement called geopolymer cement, which doesn't include any limestone-based clinker. Strategy three is mineral carbonation or carbon capture and use, where we absorb the remaining emissions from the clinker we still will be manufacturing 
and make it into a material with, with commercial value. And then strategy four is just to limit the amount of cement and concrete use by better design, by using higher performance concretes, and by greater use of timber for buildings. And when we use timber, we can replace the concrete and the steel in in the building. Okay, so let's get into strategy one then a bit more. It relies on zero carbon cement by supplying 50% of the geopolymer cement, including fly ash, and accounting for 6 million tonnes of cement in 10 years. Tell us how that can be achieved and what reductions are possible. That's right. So so the strategy envisages that within 10 years, 50% of the Australian market for cement can be met with geopolymer cement. And geopolymer cements are quite a different type of cement. They don't include clinker. They are made with uh, materials such as fly ash from coal-fired power stations, slag, a type of slag called ground granulated blast furnace slag, which is a byproduct of the iron and steel industry. They can be ma- made with clay. And they have a sort of magic ingredient, which is an alkali activator. Uh, and when you put in this alkali activator, which is a strongly alkaline solution with the other materials, it creates the reactions which... Uh, turn the materials into a binder uh, and enable it to become a cement. I better just say that the the fly ash, which is the main ingredient we're looking at, we don't need currently operating coal-fired power stations to generate this fly ash. Australia has been burning coal for a long time and that has given us a legacy of hundreds of millions of tonnes, at least 400 million tonnes of stockpiled fly ash. And Mm. That will need some processing to be used in cement, but some other countries, particularly Europe, are starting to process the fly ash, and uh, we should see it as a big resource, actually. So what would we do? we build cement um, production places around locations where the fly ash is and refine it and then use it? Yeah, that would that would be a really good idea, um, and it could be part of the, uh, the transition for areas that have coal-fired power stations mm-hmm. to, as they close to build geopolymer cement plants at the site of the stockpile fly ash. And one interesting thing about the manufacture of geopolymer cement is that you can set up the plant far more cheaply than you can a traditional cement kiln because you don't, you don't need a kiln. The principal reactions take place at uh, either room temperature or low temperature. Fly ash is actually a bit of a pain to transport, so it makes sense to establish the plants at the site of the stockpile fly ash. And there is a manufacturer of sort of geopolymer concrete blocks called New Rock in Australia, and they've established themselves at the Mount Piper Power Station in New South Wales, and they are already in production using both fresh and stockpiled fly ash making geopolymer concrete blocks. For those of you who have just joined us, this is the BZE Climate Solutions Show, and we're talking to Michael Lord from BZE about the latest BZE Zero Carbon Australia report called Think, rethinking cement. You talked just before about steel in concrete and how it was a death of concrete, or could be the death of concrete. Can you tell us what geopolymer cements have with regard to compare the characteristics of geopolymer cement compared to Portland cement? Do, do they have similar tensile and compressive strengths, um, and all the other flammability, of- setting times, all those sort of things? Yeah, well, one of the interesting things about geopolymer cements is that they, they can do anything that a Portland cement can do, but in a few situations they actually outperform Portland cements. So one of the 
one interesting thing is that they are more resistant in corrosive and hostile environments. So, for example, a sewage tunnel, which is quite acidic, we've got a picture in the report of a geopolymer cement and what it looks like after two and a half years left in a sewage tank compared to uh, it's a geopolymer cement compared to a Portland cement concrete. And the geopolymer cement concrete has fared far better. Uh, it, it, it works better as a pitcher, but it, it looks like the day it's been put in, whereas the regular concrete has corroded significantly. So on the, the steel, geopolymer cements tend to have higher flexural strength. So that's the ability to be bent without cracking compared to regular concrete. That's great, because that's always been an issue with concrete, hasn't yes, it? Yes, it has in- incredible compressive strength, but not as great doesn't flexural like strength yeah. uh, in the same way as a material like stone or brick. It doesn't like being bent, which is why we put steel in it. There will be some instances where that greater flexural strength allows us to not use steel in the first place, which mm-hmm. would be great. But to be honest, in, for most situations, you'll still need that steel because it, even geopolymer cement concretes don't have wonderful flexural strength compared mm-hmm. to something like steel. So... Are there potential health issues? You talk about reusing this fly ash. Um, it contains toxins and heavy metals. Uh, are there any major issues there with trying to reuse it? As far as we're aware, the, 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 the toxins in the fly ash will be locked away in the concrete. So there, there will be no health issues of using it. In fact, there are health benefits because as long as the fly ash is essentially landfilled, there's a risk that it can break up and blow into the atmosphere and cause a local health hazard. And this actually... Or contaminate groundwater too. uh, That's true. It can also contaminate groundwater, and that's happened. Earlier this year at a closed uh, closed coal-fired power station at Port Augusta, the um, seals on the stockpiled fly ash broke, and there'd been some very dry weather, and then there was windy weather, and the wind blew this ash around the oh, town yeah. of Port Augusta, and the inhabitants were breathing it. Mm. So they would be very happy if this fly ash started to get used. And uh, I remember that, yeah. yeah. Where have geopolymer cements been used so far? They have been, they've got a history of at least 60 years. So the first ones were used in the Soviet Union, and there are, we have some pictures in the report of, Uh, residential blocks that were made using geopolymers that were uh, used slag as their main material. Uh, So we know that they're durable and they stand the test of time. More recently, Australia has actually been one of the places uh, where there's most experience of geopolymer cement concretes. So a really good example is the first airport built in Australia for decades, Brisbane West Wellcamp Airport, Mm -hmm. which was built by a Queensland construction company called Wagner's. And they built it almost entirely with their proprietary concrete, earth-friendly concrete, which is made with a geopolymer cement. Wow. So would there have been Australian standards developed for this concrete? Standards is an interesting question. At the moment, I'd say the fact that the standards don't explicitly reference geopolymer cement is a barrier to its use uh, in buildings and other structures. But you you say it was put in the Brisbane airport, which yes. is an incredibly the, risky... The thing is, the standards don't stop you using it. They don't explicitly stop you. The standards are performance-based. 
So you can use it if you want. And I think what they did, um, what Wagner's did for the for the Brisbane West Airport, is that they had a consultant essentially assess that the that the concrete was going to meet mm. the performance requirements and sign that off. And of course, uh, as you say, it's a, a standard um, performance standard. So I've seen when they pause pour do big concrete pours on critical infrastructure they just take pots and then test those that's after right they do, they, and do, if, they do strength tests yeah. typically after seven days and 28 days yep. and if it meets the strength uh, yeah it passes the test but standards australia in conjunction with the uh, the crc the cooperative research council is developing a standard for geopolymers that they're, they're releasing a handbook on their use later this year and that will that will develop into a standard in the next couple of years and that will make things a lot easier for structural engineers to specify geopolymer cements here. And some other countries have geopolymer cement standards. Britain does, for example. Oh, okay. Because structural engineers are fairly conservative normally when they're specifying products, aren't they? Yeah, and un- un- understandably so. Uh, <laughs> neither they nor anyone else wants buildings and structures to, to you know fall apart or start to deteriorate. So... One of the things we're trying to do this with this report is show that the, the cements and concretes we're talking about have been in use for a long time. They've been used in all sorts of different situations and they work. Mm. And they've been working for 50 years, so that gives you long-term confidence as well. That's right, yeah. Okay, so strategy two then, that requires a high-blend cement and has some residual emissions. So what re- emissions reductions can be achieved and what blends are used? The blends that are used are really similar to the blends that are already being used today. So the Australian cement industry already uses, already substitutes about 30% of the clinker in cement with materials, and it's really the same materials as are uh, uh, applicable in geopolymer cements, fly ash, iron slag, and potentially metakaolin, which is, which is a processed clay, although that's not done at the moment. So that's something you've identified for this report as being an option? We've, I- we've identified it for the report. And the reason kale and clays are really important as a way of making cement is that if other countries in the world are going to copy us, and that's one of the reasons we've written this report, for Australia to be a world leader in a technology that we can then sell to the rest of the world, not all countries have the amount, have enough fly ash to make all their cement. Australia does for the next couple of decades. Uh, Not all countries do, but many of them will have enough quantities of kale and clay because it's a very widely distributed and abundant material. So it is important that we start to develop those here. And you've said we have about 400 million tonnes of fly ash stockpiled. Um, As you mentioned earlier, we've got large stockpiles. How long do you think that would take us to run out? Uh, we, th- we think that's uh, enough for, for the level of usage we're talking about, about 20 years in Australia. Mm-hmm. And, and it's important to say that probably not all that 400 million tonnes will be usable. There are different types of fly ash. They're, they're chemically quite surprisingly different. And, for example, the fly ash in Victoria is n- not as good for use in cement uh, so the fly ash that's being caused by created by burning brown coal, it's not as good for using cement as the fly ash from burning black coal in Queensland and New South Wales. Okay, so strategy three, that employs a new technology called mineral carbonation. Can you describe that and the emission reductions we could achieve with that? 
Yeah, so once once we've implemented strategies one and two, we think we'll be left with about 15% of the process emissions from cement manufacture in this country. So strategy three is a way of dealing with those. So mineral carbonation would be something that's attached to a cement kiln and enables the carbon dioxide emissions to be absorbed. And what absorbs them is in the main process we talk about in the report is magnesium silicate. And magnesium silicate is available in a very abundant rock called serpentine. There's lots of it in the great serpentinite belt, for example, in New South Wales. And in the process, the carbon dioxide reacts with this rock and becomes magnesium carbonate. So the carbon dioxide is chemically bound within a stable rock and it can't come out. And the beauty of this process is that it the magnesium carbonate that it creates will have commercial value, for example, as mm. a fire-resistant building material, <laughs> as a road base, and as an aggregate. And the process also creates silica, which also has a commercial value. So there's a company in uh, Newcastle in New South Wales called Mineral Carbonation International, which is working to develop and commercialize this process. But mineral carbonation is, is already done commercially uh, in a few places around the world. So is it expensive to add that to an existing plant? Yeah, it, it, it would be expensive. So that's one of the things that uh, the company that I mentioned are working on, reducing the cost of the process. So they, the, uh, I think they aim to reduce the cost to about $40 a tonne of carbon dioxide. And then that cost would be offset by the commercial value of the silica and the magnesium carbonate. Okay, so Michael, strategy four involves using less cement, providing a 15% reduction in cement consumption over 10 years. How can we achieve that? Yeah, that's right. So strategy four is, as you said, about using less cement in the first place. So an analogy in the energy sector would be energy efficiency. You know, the, 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 the greenest uh, you know, jewel is the one that you don't e- expend, and it's the same with using less cement. So we think we can essentially make sure there's no increase in the demand for cement between now and the end of our 10-year strategy, and that's about a 15% reduction. And we do that by one of, one of the ways is by better design. So there's not a lot of incentive for structural engineers and designers to minimize the amount of concrete in a structure or a building. But if we use modern software to design shapes, we find we can reduce, sometimes drastically reduce, the amount of, of concrete in, in, a, in a particular structure. So one of the ways of doing that is just cleverer design. Another way is by using very high strength concrete. So usually a high strength concrete, you might say, is it's measured in MPA, megapascals. A high strength would be, say, 80. But very high strength concrete goes above 100, maybe even to 200. And what that enables you to do is use much thinner sections of concrete, and therefore you use less of it, and therefore you use less cement. So we think that's one way of uh, using less cement and concrete. I would have thought people would have done that now. I mean, obviously, that's a cost-saving as well, isn't it? It is a cost-saving, but what's it, it's, it's more expensive to pay a structural engineer than it is to buy concrete. Oh, That's right. the problem. <laughs> and the type of things we're talking about, software will help, but they require more time in terms of design. But isn't high-strength concrete just made by putting more cement in it? That's right. 
there is there is a higher proportion of cement in high high strength concrete, but because the reduction can be so great, so you can use mm -hmm. you can sometimes use only a third of the amount of concrete. So even though mm -hmm. there is more okay. cement in that concrete, overall you're saving mm -hmm. cement. The other way of using less cement is for buildings. We could use, uh, make far greater use of timber. So we're already starting to see this happen. We've got a 10-story apartment building in Docklands in Melbourne, which at the time was the tallest timber building in the world, made with cross-laminated timber. There are all sorts of new structural timber products coming on the market, things like laminated veneer lumber, which enable us to build bigger and bigger buildings just from wood. And when we use timber in that way, we're replacing the majority of the concrete and the steel in the building. And we're sequestering carbon. And we're sequestering carbon, which is a really crucial part of our strategy because it actually enables us to go beyond zero emissions mm -hmm. and not just have a zero carbon you know, cement sector, but a carbon negative one. You'd also have to build more forests. <laughs> that, that is the main limitation. Most buildings now, uh, at least up to 20-storey actually, could be built with, with timber. But do we have the wood? Uh, at the moment, we think we've got enough wood for, I think we say, about 10% uh, of buildings. In the long term, we could get more wood through plantations. And the laminated timbers have got quite an amazing strength too, haven't they? You could build quite tall buildings with, with the laminated timber. Yeah, that's right. They're, they're very strong. They have a number of interesting properties. They're actually quite fire-resistant. That's right, they're fire resistant. And they've got the well. flexibility, great in earthquake zones and stuff. That, yeah, they, they, they found that uh, in Christchurch, New Zealand, that timber buildings would withstood the seismic shocks better than concrete buildings and uh, there's, they didn't have to be demolished mm -hmm. afterwards. They're, they're quicker to assemble. Oh, of course. And yeah. you could pre-assemble quite a bit too, you I'd could, imagine. You could, pre you could pre-assemble it. So while the, at the moment the cost of the wood products is more than the concrete and steel equivalents, you say, overall you save because of the quicker construction. So you also have a strategy five which kicks in after 10 years and uses magnesium-based cements that absorb CO2. Yeah, strategy, strategy five is not part of our 10-year pathway. And that's because the magnesium-based cements that you mentioned are not proven yet, but they are really a tantalising prospect because if you were able to make cement, magnesium-based cements, and you would start with the same, same raw materials as mineral carbonation, magnesium silicates, rocks like uh, olivine and, and serpentine, there's the potential to make a cement that for every tonne you make, it absorbs half a tonne of carbon dioxide. So if we use these on a large scale around the world, we would turn our cities into carbon sinks. That's amazing, isn't it? It, it is amazing. Um, mm -hmm. And as I say, the, these cements are not commercially proven yet. There was a company called Novasem in the UK that tried to commercialise them and unfortunately is no longer operating. But the, we think that it's worth a lot more research into this area. And the raw materials they need, serpentine and olivine, are, like limestone, widely available around the world. Are they widely available in Australia? 
Yes, even in Australia, I mentioned earlier the Great Serpentinite Belt in New South Wales, which has hundreds of millions of tons of serpentine. And uh, yeah, particularly serpentine is available in, in Australia. So we could be leaders in developing this industry. Yeah, that's one of the points of the report, that we could be leaders in all of these industries, which so uh, the benefit would be not just a zero carbon building industry in Australia, but being able to sell these technologies to the rest of the world because they're going to be very important. Michael, I give a um, talk talking about uh, climate change and the wicked concept of a wicked problem. Yeah. Uh, which uh, one of the aspects is that the the more you try to get into it, the the more complicated and more nasty tendrils there are. But the stuff you're telling us is actually the reverse. You're telling us about all these wonderful synergies of how we can use fire ash that's, that's just been regarded as a waste product up to now. Um, the resources that we have. And, of course, we haven't mentioned how well it dovetails with the Beyond Zero Emissions Australian Renewable Energy Superpower report because not only do we have all these resources you've just listed off, but we have the the best renewables per head in the world and so we can actually use free energy to be able to produce these things and export them as well as use them for ourselves. Yeah, that's right. One of the things I haven't mentioned is that the alkali act, the alkaline solution required for geopolymer cements is made by electrolysis, or that's the lowest emission way of making it. Mm-hmm. And so that's another way we could use our abundant renewable energy sources to make this alkali act- activator. And, and you're right, it's another way that Australia has a head start. Not only do we have this abundant renewable energy, but we've got sources of kale and clays and fly ash, which enable us to develop these alternative cement industries. I think that's a wonderfully positive note to end on. Thank you, Michael, and thank you for your hard work in preparing this report. Thank you. Yes, thank you, Michael. And not only that, you've made it sound very interesting. Oh, good. <laughs> I never thought cement could be interesting. Well, if I've made cement sound interesting, that's, that's half the job done. <laughs> you can talk under cement. Well, <laughs> well, the amazing thing is the immense opportunities Australia has in all these areas, as you say, that BZE has identified in its reports. It, every time another report comes out, there's another amazing opportunity for Australia to take up. That's right. And at the end of the report, we go through a few of the actions that the government and industry could take to capitalise on these opportunities. And I think one thing is to take a similar approach as we have with renewable energy. So to set targets, uh, to allow the Clean Energy Finance Corporation and ARENA to invest in the deployment and the uh, research into these cements and yeah, treat it in a similar way as we have renewable energy. Okay, so you've given a pathway for the next 10 years of the strategies to take and then further strategies beyond that, strategy five, and then also how does industry and how does the Australian government achieve these strategies? That's right. That's fantastic. Thank you. Thank you very much, Michael. The Beyond Zero report is brought to you by the Climate Change Solutions think tank Beyond Zero Emissions and is recorded in the studios of 3CR Melbourne and syndicated around Australia on the Community Radio Network. If you want to listen to this show or any of the others we've done, you can go to www.bze.org.au and click on podcasts. If you enjoy the program and would like to donate, just go to the BZE website and click on the donate button. Thanks for listening and hope we'll catch you again next week. Beyond Zero Emissions is an internationally recognised climate solutions think tank that is focused on solutions, not problems. Become part of the solution by becoming a monthly base load supporter. Go to www.bze.org.au to find out more.
bze.org.au. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.